Tiberius, Part Four, of the Lives of the Twelve Caesars, by Gaius Suetonius Tranquillus. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Lives of the Twelve Caesars by Gaius Suetonius Tranquillus, translated by Alexander Thompson and edited by T. Forrester. Tiberius, Part Four. About the same time, when the praetor consulted him whether it was his pleasure that the tribunal should take cognizance of accusations of treason, he replied, The laws ought to be put in execution, and he did put them in execution most severely. Some person had taken off the head of Augustus from one of his statues and replaced it by another. The matter was brought before the Senate, and because the case was not clear, the witnesses were put to the torture. The party accused being found guilty and condemned, this kind of proceeding was carried so far that it became capital for a man to beat his slave, or change his clothes near the statue of Augustus, to carry his head stamped upon the coin, or cut in the stone of a ring into a necessary house, or the stews, or to reflect upon anything that had been either said or done by him. In fine, a person was condemned to death for suffering some honours to be decreed to him in the colony where he lived, upon the same day on which they had formerly been decreed to Augustus. He was besides guilty of many barbarous actions, under the pretence of strictness and reformation of manners, but more to gratify his own savage disposition. Some verses were published, which displayed the present calamities of his reign, and anticipated the future. Asper et imitis, breviter vis omnia dicam. Dispeream, site mater amare potest. Non es equus quare, non sunt tibimilia centum. Omnia sequaeras et rodus exilium est. Aurea mutastis Saturni saecula Caesar. In columni namte ferrea semper erunt. Fastidit vinum, quia jam, sedit iste cruorem. Tam bibit hunc avida, quam bibit antemerum. At spica felicem sibi, non tibi Romule solam, et marium civis at spica sed reducum, nec non Antoni civilia bella momentis. Nec semel infectas at spica caea de manus, et dic Roma perit, regnabit sanquine multo, ad regnum quisquis venib at exilio. Obdurate wretch, too fierce to fail to move, to least kind yearnings of a mother's love, no knight thou art, a having no estate, long suffered so in Rhodes and exile fate. No more the happy golden age we see, the irons come, and sure to last with thee. Instead of wine he thirst for before, he wallows now in floods of human gore. Reflect ye Romans on the dreadful times, made such by Marius and by Sulla's crimes. Reflect how Antony's ambitious rage, twice scared with horror a distracted age, and say, alas, Rome's blood in streams will flow, when banished miscreants rule this world below. At first he would have it understood that these satirical verses were drawn forth by the resentment of those who were impatient under the discipline of reformation, rather than that they spoke their real sentiments, and he would frequently say, let them hate me so long as they do but approve my conduct. 
At length, however, his behavior showed that he was sensible they were too well founded. A few days after his arrival at Capri, a fisherman coming up to him unexpectedly, when he was desirous of privacy, and presenting him with a large mullet, he ordered the man's face to be scrubbed with the fish, being terrified at the thought of his having been able to creep upon him from the back of the island, over such rugged and steep rocks. The man, while undergoing the punishment, expressing his joy that he had not likewise offered him a large crab, which he had also taken, he ordered his face to be farther lacerated with its claws. He put to death one of the Praetorian guards, for having stolen a peacock out of his orchard. In one of his journeys, his litter being obstructed by some bushes, he ordered the officer, whose duty it was to ride on and examine the road, a centurion of the first cohorts, to be laid on his face upon the ground, and scourged almost to death. Soon afterwards he abandoned himself to every species of cruelty, never wanting occasions of one kind or another to serve as a pretext. He first fell upon the friends and acquaintances of his mother, then those of his grandsons and his daughter-in-law, and lastly those of Sejanus, after whose death he became cruel in an extreme. From this it appeared that he had not been so much instigated by Sejanus, as supplied with occasions of gratifying his savage temper when he wanted them. Though in a short memoir, which he composed of his own life, he had the effrontery to write, I have punished Sejanus, because I found him bent upon the destruction of the children of my son Germanicus. One of these he put to death, when he began to suspect Sejanus, and another after he was taken off. It would be tedious to relate all the numerous instances of his cruelty. Suffice it to give a few examples in their different kinds. Not a day passed without the punishment of some person or other, not excepting holidays, or those appropriated to the worship of the gods. Some were tried even on New Year's Day. Of many who were condemned, their wives and children shared the same fate, and for those who were sentenced to death, the relations were forbid to put on mourning. Considerable rewards were voted for the prosecutors, and sometimes for the witnesses also. The information of any person, without exception, was taken, and all offences were capital, even speaking a few words, though without any ill intention. A poet was charged with abusing Agamemnon, and a historian for calling Brutus and Cassius the last of the Romans. The two authors were immediately called to account, and their writings suppressed, though they had been well received some years before, and read in the hearing of Augustus. Some who were thrown into prison were not only denied the solace of study, but debarred from all company and conversation. Many persons, when summoned to trial, stabbed themselves at home, to avoid the distress and ignominy of a public condemnation, which they were certain would ensue. Others took poison in the senate-house. The wounds were bound up, and all who had not expired were carried, half-dead, and panting for life to prison. Those who were put to death were thrown down the Gimonian stairs, and then dragged into the Tiber. In one day twenty were treated in this manner, and amongst them women and boys. Because, according to an ancient custom, it was not lawful to strangle virgins, the young girls were first deflowered by the executioner, and afterwards strangled. Those who were desirous to die were forced to live, 
for he saw death so slight a punishment, that upon hearing that Carnulius, one of the accused, who was under persecution, had killed himself, he exclaimed, Carnulius has escaped me. In calling over his prisoners, when one of them requested the favor of a speedy death, he replied, You are not yet restored to favor. A man of consular rank writes in his annals that at table, where he himself was present with a large company, he was suddenly asked aloud by a dwarf, who stood by amongst the buffins, why Paconius, who was under prosecution for treason, lived so long. Tiberius immediately reprimanded him for his pertinence, but wrote to the Senate a few days after, to proceed without delay to the punishment of Paconius. Exasperated by information he received respecting the death of his son Drusus, he carried his cruelty still farther. He imagined that he had died of a disease occasioned by his intemperance, but finding that he had been poisoned by the contrivance of his wife Livilla and Sejanus, he spared no one from torture and death. He was so entirely occupied with the examination of this affair for whole days together, that upon being informed that the person in whose house he had lodged at Rhodes, and whom he had by a friendly letter invited to Rome, was arrived, he ordered him immediately to be put to the torture, as a party concerned in the inquiry. Upon finding his mistake, he commanded him to be put to death, that he might not publish the injury done him. The place of execution is still shown at Capri, where he ordered those who were condemned to die, after long and exquisite tortures, to be thrown before his eyes from a precipice into the sea. There a party of soldiers belonging to the fleet waited for them, and broke their bones with poles and oars, lest they should have any life left in them. Among various kinds of torture invented by him, one was to induce people to drink a large quantity of wine, and then to tie up their members with harp-strings, thus tormenting them at once by the tightness of the ligature and the stoppage of their urine. Had not death prevented him, and Thrasyllus, designedly, as some say, prevailed with him to defer some of his cruelties, in hopes of longer life, it is believed that he would have destroyed many more, and not have spared even the rest of his grandchildren, for he was jealous of Caius, and hated Tiberius, as having been conceived in adultery. This conjecture is indeed highly probable, for he used often to say, Happy Priam, who survived all his children. Amidst these enormities, in how much fear and apprehension, as well as odium and detestation he lived, is evident from many indications. He forbade the soothsayers to be consulted in private, and without some witnesses being present. He attempted to suppress the oracles in the neighborhood of the city, but being terrified by the divine authority of the Prianistin lots, he abandoned the design. For though they were sealed up in a box and carried to home, yet they were not to be found in it until it was returned to the temple. More than one person of consular rank appointed governors of provinces, he never ventured to dismiss to their respective destinations, but kept them until several years after, when he nominated their successors, while they still remained present with him. In the meantime they bore the title of their office, and he frequently gave them orders, which they took care to have executed by their deputies and assistants. He never removed his daughter-in-law or grandsons after their condemnation to any place, 
but in fetters and in a covered litter, with a guard to hinder all who met them on the road, and travellers from stopping to gaze at them. After Sejanus had plotted against him, though he saw that this birthday was solemnly kept by the public, and divine honours paid to golden images of him in every quarter, yet it was this difficulty at last, and more by artifice than his imperial power, that he accomplished his death. In the first place to remove him from about his person, under the pretext of doing him honour, he made him his colleague in his fifth consulship, which, although then absent from the city, he took upon him for that purpose, long after his preceding consulship. Then, having flattered him with the hope of an alliance by marriage with one of his own kindred, and the prospect of the tribunitian authority, he suddenly, while Sejanus little expected it, charged him with treason, in an abject and pitiful address to the senate, in which, among other things, he begged them, to send one of the consuls to conduct himself a poor solitary old man with a guard of soldiers into their presence. Still distrustful, however, and apprehensive of an insurrection, he ordered his grandson Drusus, whom he still kept in confinement at Rome, to be set at liberty, and if occasion required, to head the troops. He had likewise ships in readiness to transport him to any of the legions to which he might consider it expedient to make his escape. Meanwhile he was upon the watch, from the summit of the lofty cliff, for the signals which he had ordered to be made, if anything occurred, lest the messenger should be tardy. Even when he had quite foiled the conspiracy of Sejanus, he was still haunted as much as ever with fears and apprehensions, insomuch that he never once steered out of the Villa Jovis for nine months after. To the extreme anxiety of mind, which he now experienced, he had the mortification to find, supper added, the most poignant reproaches from all quarters. Those who were condemned to die heaped upon him the most opprobrious language in his presence, or by handbills scattered in the senator's seats in the theatre. These produced different effects. Sometimes he wished, out of shame, to have all smothered and concealed, at other times he would disregard what was said, and publish it himself. To this accumulation of scandal and open sarcasm, there is to be subjoined a letter from Artabanus, king of the Parthians, in which he abrades him with his parasides, murders, cowardice, and lewdness, and advises him to satisfy the furious rage of his own people, which he had so justly excited, by putting an end to his life without delay. At last, being quite weary of himself, he acknowledged his extreme misery in a letter to the Senate, which began thus. What to write to you, conscript fathers, or how to write, or what not to write at this time? May all the gods and goddesses pour upon my head a more terrible vengeance than that under which I feel myself daily thinking, if I can tell. Some are of opinion that he had a foreign knowledge of those things, from his skill in the science of divination, and perceived long before what misery and infamy would at last come upon him, and that for this reason, at the beginning of his reign, he had absolutely refused the title of the father of his country, and the proposal of the senate to swear to his acts, lest he should afterwards, to his greater shame, be found unequal to such extraordinary honours. This indeed may be justly inferred from the speeches, which he made upon both those occasions, as when he says, 
I shall ever be the same, and shall never change my conduct, so long as I retain my senses, but to avoid giving a bad precedent to posterity, the Senate ought to beware of binding themselves to the acts of any person whatever, who might by some accident or other be induced to alter them. And again, if you should at any time entertain a jealousy of my conduct, and my entire affection for you, which heaven prevent by putting a period to my days, rather than I should live to see such an alteration in your opinion of me, the title of father will add no honor to me, but be a reproach to you, for your rashness in conferring it upon me, or inconstancy in altering your opinion of me. In person he was large and robust, of a stature somewhat above the common size, broad in the shoulders and chest, and proportionable in the rest of his frame. He used his left hand more readily and with more force than his right, and his joints were so strong that he could bore a fresh, sound apple through with his finger, and wound the head of a boy, or even a young man, with a fillet. He was of a fair complexion, and wore his hair so long behind that it covered his neck, which was observed to be a mark of distinction affected by the family. He had a handsome face, but it was often full of pimples. His eyes, which were large, had the wonderful faculty of seeing in the night-time, and in the dark, for a short time only, and immediately after awaking from sleep, but they soon grew dim again. He walked with his neck stiff and upright, generally with a frowning countenance, being for the most part silent. When he spoke to those about him, it was very slowly, and usually accompanied with a slight gesticulation of his fingers. All which, being repulsive habits and signs of arrogance, were remarked by Augustus, who often endeavored to excuse them to the senate and people, declaring that they were natural defects, which proceeded from no viciousness of mind. He enjoyed a good state of health, without interruption, almost during the whole period of his rule, though, from the thirtieth year of his age, he treated it himself according to his own discretion, without any medical assistance. In regard to the gods and matters of religion, he discovered much indifference, being greatly addicted to astrology, and fully persuaded that all things were governed by fate. Yet he was extremely afraid of lightning, and when the sky was in a disturbed state, always wore a laurel crown on his head, because it is supposed that the leaf of that tree is never touched by the lightning. He applied himself with great diligence to the liberal arts, both Greek and Latin. In his Latin style he affected to imitate Messala Corvinus, a venerable man, to whom he had paid much respect in his own early years. But he rendered his style obscure by excessive affectation and abstruseness, so that he was thought to speak better extempore than in a premeditated discourse. He composed likewise a lyric ode, under the title of a lamentation upon the death of Lucius Caesar, and also some Greek poems, in imitation of Euphorion, Rianus, and Parthenius. These poets he greatly admired, and placed their works and statues in the public libraries, amongst the eminent authors of antiquity. On this account, most of the learned men of the time veered with each other in publishing observations upon them, which they addressed to him. His principal study, however, was the history of the fabulous ages, inquiring even into its trifling details in a ridiculous manner, 
for he used to try the grammarians, a class of men which, as I have already observed, he much affected, with such questions as these. Who was Hecuba's mother? What name did Achilles assume among the virgins? What was it that the sirens used to sing? On the first day that he entered the senate-house, after the death of Augustus, as if he intended to pay respect at once to his father's memory and to the gods, he made an offering of frankincense and wine, but without any music, in imitation of Minos, upon the death of his son. Though he was ready and conversant with the Greek tongue, yet he did not use it everywhere, but chiefly he avoided it in the senate-house, insomuch that having occasion to employ the word monopolium, monopoly, he first begged pardon for being obliged to adopt a foreign word. And when in a decree of the senate the word emblema, emblem, was read, he proposed to have it changed, and that the Latin word should be substituted in its room, or, if no proper one could be found, to express the thing by circumlocution. A soldier who was examined as a witness upon a trial, in Greek, he would not allow to reply except in Latin. During the whole time of his seclusion at Capri, twice only he made an effort to visit Rome. Once he came in a galley as far as the gardens near the Naumachia, but placed guards along the banks of the Tiber, to keep off all who should offer to come to meet him. The second time he travelled on the Appian Way, as far as the seventh milestone from the city, but he immediately returned without entering it, having only taken a view of the walls at a distance. For what reason he did not disembark in his first excursion is uncertain, but in the last he was deterred from entering the city by a prodigy. He was in the habit of diverting himself with a snake, and upon going to feed it with his own hand, according to custom, he found it devoured by ants, from which he was advised to beware of the fury of the mob. On this account, returning in all haste to Campania, he fell ill at Astura, but recovering a little, went on to Circei, and to obviate any suspicion of his being in a bad state of health, he was not only present at the sports in the camp, but encountered with javelins a wild boar, which was let loose in the arena. Being immediately seized with a pain in the side, and catching cold upon his overheating himself in the exercise, he relapsed into a worse condition than he was before. He held out, however, for some time, and sailing as far as Missenum, omitted nothing in his usual mode of life, not even in his entertainments and other gratifications, partly from an ungovernable appetite, and partly to conceal his condition. For Heracles, a physician, having obtained leave of absence on his rising from table, took his hand to kiss it, upon which Tiberius, supposing he did it to feel his pulse, desired him to stay and resume his place, and continued the entertainment longer than usual. Nor did he omit his usual custom of taking his station in the centre of the apartment, a lictor standing by him, while he took leave of each of the party by name. Meanwhile, finding, upon looking over the acts of the Senate, that some person under prosecution had been discharged without being brought to a hearing, for he had only written cursorily that they had been denounced by an informer, he complained in a great rage that he was treated with contempt, and resolved at all hazards to return to Capri, not daring to attempt anything until he found himself in a place of security. 
but being detained by storms and the increasing violence of his disorder, he died shortly afterwards, at a villa formerly belonging to Lucullus, in the seventy-eighth year of his age, and the twenty-third of his reign, upon the seventeenth of the calends of April, sixteenth March, in the consulship of Cneius Acheronius Proculus and Caius Pontius Niger. Some think that a slow-consuming poison was given him by Caius. Others say that during the interval of the intermittent fever with which he happened to be seized, upon asking for food, it was denied him. Others report that he was stifled by a pillow thrown upon him, when, on his recovering from a swoon, he called for his ring, which had been taken from him in the fit. Seneca writes that, finding himself dying, he took his signet ring off his finger, and held it a while, as if he would deliver it to somebody, but put it again upon his finger, and lay for some time, with his left hand clenched and without stirring, when suddenly summoning his attendants, and no one answering the call, he rose, but his strength failing him, he fell down at a short distance from his bed. Upon his last birthday he had brought a full-sized statue of the Timenian Apollo from Syracuse, a work of exquisite art, intending to place it in the library of the new temple, but he dreamed that the god appeared to him in the night, and assured him that his statue could not be erected by him. A few days before he died, the pharos at Capri was thrown down by an earthquake, and at Misenum some embers and live coals, which were brought in to warm his apartment, went out, and after being quite cold, burst out into a flame again towards evening and continued burning very brightly for several hours. The people were so much elated at his death, that when they first heard the news, they ran up and down the city, some crying out, Away with Tiberius to the Tiber, others exclaiming, May the earth, the common mother of mankind, and the infernal gods, allow him no abode in death, but amongst the wicked. Others threatened his body with the hook and the gemonian stairs, their indignation at his former cruelty being increased by recent atrocity. It had been provided by an act of the Senate that the execution of condemned criminals should always be deferred until the tenth day after the sentence. Now this fell on the very day when the news of Tiberius' death arrived, and in consequence of which the unhappy man implored a reprieve for mercy's sake. But as Caius had not yet arrived, and there was no one else to whom application could be made on their behalf, their guards, apprehensive of violating the law, strangled them, and threw them down the Gemonian stairs. This roused the people to a still greater abhorrence of the tyrant's memory, since his cruelty continued in use even after he was dead. As soon as his corpse was begun to be moved from Misenum, many cried out for its being carried to Atella and being half-burnt there, in the amphitheatre. It was, however, brought to Rome, and burnt with the usual ceremony. He had made about two years before duplicates of his will, one written by his own hand, and the other by that of one of his freedmen, and both were witnessed by some persons of very mean rank. He appointed his two grandsons, Caius by Germanicus, and Tiberius by Drusus, joint heirs to his estate, and upon the death of one of them, the other was to inherit the whole. He gave likewise many legacies, amongst which were bequests to the Vestal Virgins, to all the soldiers, and each one of the people of Rome, 
and to the magistrates of the several quarters of the city. End of Tiberius. <laughs>